Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm your host for today's session, editor Nicole Vulcan. Ben Don't Break is powered by The Source Weekly, your source for news, events, and so much more in Central Oregon. We're happy you've decided to join us today as we talk with some of the people who shape our community. This podcast is powered by Rockin' Dave's Bistro and Backstage Lounge, Midtown's hotspot for bagels, breakfast, sandwiches, soup, salad, and catering. Get in there. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jane Gwynn. Dr. Jane Gwynn is a world-renowned sex and relationship coach who received a PhD in human sexuality. She works with couples and individuals locally and all over the world. Although her work focuses on issues related to intimacy and sex, she also works with people who have fears and or abuse issues related to sex, as well as a variety of other issues that impair their authentic connection. Jane wrote this simple book, Too Busy to Get Busy, and she's also the author of Understanding Intimacy, a column she writes for us here at The Source Weekly. When she's not working directly with couples, individuals, or groups, she spends her time connecting through her blogs, video blogs, and speaking engagements. She's trained as a 200-hour yoga teacher and also enjoys the embarrassing and wonderful experience of doing improv as a beginner. Jane lives here in Bend with her best friend, Jim. They've been married for almost 40 years and have six grown kids, one grandchild, and several unruly pets. Thanks for joining us on Ben Don't Break, Jane. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you, Nicole. Yeah. So, you know, people, you you introduce yourself, you say you're a sexologist. I'm sure that gets people sometimes, um, you know, taken aback. Absolutely. (laughs) Just share a little bit about your journey to earning your PhD in human sexuality. What led you to that work? Well, I started out as a nurse trained at UCLA in nursing, and uh, at that time even, I was very interested in the topic of sex and sexuality, but um, as life has it, I went on some other journeys. I became, um, uh, I was a small business owner for a while, I got married, had bunches of kids, lived in several parts of the world, and I noticed in my own life that as I got busier and you know had this big family that my own sexuality started to kind of become um, something I couldn't keep track of. It was almost like my to-do list was so long that sex and sexuality was way at the bottom. And I knew that was happening for my friends as well. And so I went on this uh, kind of quest to figure out what had happened to me. And as a result of that, I ended up getting uh, uh, trained as a sex coach and eventually got my PhD in, in human sexuality. It's been a very, very interesting experience learning those things. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like a lot of us, you come to the work through a personal personal need, right? Exactly right, right. I am my own client. And um, yeah, so I I understand where people are coming from when they say that they're too busy, that life has become complicated, and that they've kind of lost track of their sexuality, particularly for those of us who identify as she, hers in society, where we carry so much mental load. It's hard for us to stay connected to that part that we, that is so vitalizing, but we, we lose track of it along the way. Yeah. So just before we talk a little bit more about the column and some other things, I wanted to, I was just curious about some of the, you know, work you do with local people. You know, what do they come to see you for? Oh, people come to me with lots of concerns. Some of them are medical. There'll be people people in my office who've had um, medical issues such as urologic issues. They might be uh, recovering from breast cancer treatment or other kinds of uh, medical concerns. 
but more typically, they are suffering from just the busyness issue that's shown up in their lives. They, they've kind of grown apart sexually, or they have a libido gap. So one of them identifies as very high libido, the other identifies as low libido, and, and this difference in their libidos causes them to have a lot of stress and conflict in their relationship. Yeah, I do. I want to touch on the libido thing because I know that um, you had some writings about that on your website and that's, um, you know, there might be some interpretation concerns there. But first, I just wanted to, you know, just kind of cover some of the like the basics of, of your background. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. Now, you've mentioned a couple times the word busy, mm-hmm. and that definitely mm-hmm. seems like it's... Um, you know, a thread in terms of uh, barriers to intimacy. So just tell us a little bit more about too busy to get busy. Absolutely. When we are um, in the middle of life, and as I mentioned, women tend to carry a big mental load in our relationships. This is something that gets discussed on podcasts and uh, elsewhere uh, often these days. Um, We can be distracted. It's hard for us to kind of get out of our heads and into our bodies in a way that allows us to be relaxed enough to be connecting with our own sexuality and with a partner. And because of that, this busyness factor, and I think this shows up in lots of areas of our life. It shows up in eating. It shows up in our inability to kind of settle in into other mindfulness-based activities. And it it is something that keeps us from living the lives that we, the grounded lives that we could live. And this certainly is uh, implicated in a lack of connection to ourselves and our partner in in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. What kind of reaction did you have to the book? When I wrote that book, um, I was living in Portland, but I'd just come out of the Midwest. So a lot of, of my background was in Minneapolis area, and it's a pretty conservative area in terms of the social kind of conversations that people have um, about life. And so I learned how to talk about sex and intimacy on the soccer field with my friends without alarming them so much. When I wrote the book, uh, lots of people told me that it spoke directly to them. There were <clears throat> people who, <clears throat> for whom, there were people for whom this book was uh, a, a very revelatory uh, read because they felt like they weren't broken, that they were heard in the book. It's a very simple book, but it really just gives us seven different ways to look at sex and intimacy um, without shame and by giving us this kind of a, a lens through which we can see what might be going on for ourselves in these seven different areas so that we can start to solve those those problems, take away those barriers. So I guess kind of testing it out on sort of the Midwest soccer mom uh, <laughs> yeah. scene was a, was a success story for you. Right, right. <laughs> Talking to my friends on the soccer field, and I know it was kind of appalling, that here I was, this mom, this soccer mom, for sure, um, talking about sex was was uh, off-putting to some people and maybe even horrifying to others. But it, you know, my my intention is to give people permission to have the conversations that we need to have in our relationships before, during, after sex with the person. Um, that we're closest to. We have so much difficulty talking about sex at all with that person. And here, here they are, the person who sees us naked, and yet we can't speak about sex. Right. Uh, that's what I, you know, just reading your column over, I think, are we going on a year now? Uh-huh. I think we're over, are we over a year? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, just reading that column, it only comes out once a month, but mm-hmm. it's always, uh, you know, a little treat in our month to <laughs> get to see what kind of advice um Dr. Jane is going to give this week. But a lot of times it isn't about the mechanics of sex. It right. is about that stuff that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 
I'm just so grateful. I know your column really started at the suggestion of a reader um, and a friend of yours. So, um, you know, just talk a little bit about what your approach was, you know, kind of entering into the column. Oh, it's been such an honor to write the column because my real reason for doing this is to help people who are in a similar situation to what I was in when I started this journey, you know, back, you know, I guess maybe 10 years ago. And um, the opportunity to speak to people I don't even know um, who might be having these concerns in their relationships is, 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 is for, for one thing, it, it is, um, I find it uh, a, a lovely opportunity to share thoughts that I might have. But what I envision is that maybe if, if you're listening to this and, and you read the column, that you sit down over coffee and you say to your partner, hey, here's this lady, and she's in the source, and she wrote this this article. What do you think about what she said? This is what the person asked. This is what she said. What do you think? That it would provide the opportunity for people to discuss the topic. Not that I have the only or best answer, but that having the conversations with ourselves, with maybe our partner or a friend, to me that is what um, the column is about, is helping helping us uh, feel more comfortable talking about sex in everyday life. Yeah. So for those not familiar, usually what, what happens is Dr. Jane is asked a question, mm-hmm. and then she answers that question and in such a loving way, in such a, you know, um, just such a sweet thing that, you know, I think it's um, no surprise that now the column is, expanding, spreading its wings Mm -hmm. to the East Coast, and um, hopefully you'll see it in other papers going forward. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited for that journey to get it out there a little more. Me too. I hope hope that the column is at kitchen tables everywhere so people can talk about these questions because these are the questions that many of us have in our relationships. They're, you know, they're, they're the co- questions that come to us in, you know, the everyday life. And, you know, how do I please my partner? How do I connect with my partner? What if my partner wants something that I don't want? Um, you know, what if I want something that they don't want? You know, these types of things are really important for us. And when we don't even know how to talk about them, it's hard to get to the next place in that conversation. Yeah. So you mentioned low libido earlier. Um, there's a there's a, you know, a writing on your website where you talk about how a woman's husband had labeled her low libido. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could be defining that as frigid in yeah. some circles. Um, and how that was a pretty you, you wrote about how that was a pretty limited view of what was going on. Yep. What's your initial feeling when someone else calls someone else low libido? Yeah, it is tough because maybe your partner is low libido for you right now. So what that would mean, let's say I'm the person and my my partner is low libido for me. That means I don't feel like my partner wants to have sex with me. I don't feel like they are interested in connecting with me. But that doesn't necessarily mean my partner is low libido. It may mean that we haven't solved something together. It may mean that um, something else is going on with that person. But I can put that, like your low libido, there, it's almost this shaming uh, kind of uh, uh, labeling that I would put on you if, if you're my partner. And, and when that happens say, to, to you, then you might end up feeling like you're inadequate, that you are somehow not a sexy or sexual person. And unfortunately, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for some of us because when, when, when we feel like we're not, our partner doesn't see us as sexy or connected or fluid or, you know, open, um, we, you know, we can take that on. 
and it it isn't uh, it isn't very helpful. Now sometimes it's it's a statement of fact that okay, I want le- a sex less often than you do. Uh, you you want sex very often. That could be true, but it could also be that I don't want the kind of sex that you're offering. The sex that we've been having isn't isn't sexy enough for me to want to get naked for that that experience. Maybe it's just not quality sex. So there's so many things to ask about the whole libido issue that most of us don't ask. We just say, my partner's low libido, or they, we might even say, my partner's asexual. Some people are asexual, but it's more like 1% of the population. So it may be that, you tell, that I tell you if, that you're asexual. This ends up giving you this feeling of being rejected, may make you feel like your sexuality just is misunderstood. And for me, this ends up... Um, in my practice, when people come with this, the person who's called low libido often feels hurt, often feels bad about themselves, and it's it's not usually a good place to start. Yeah, so this person who's receiving that label is feeling attacked, and then what I'm thinking about is now you enter this session, and how do you, um, how do you kind of approach it to not make the other person feel like they're now under attack because yeah. they're, they're the one labeling <laughs> yeah, someone? Right. Right. Well, this is such a good question, Nicole. The reason is sex is a shamey kind of space all the way around. So I, I, was, um, I do a lot of uh, work on Reddit. I do AMAs on Reddit, Ask Me Anything's on Reddit kind of often. So yesterday I was doing that in, in one of their communities, one of the subthreads on Reddit, and someone asked that exact question. So if I'm high libido and my partner now is saying, well, hey, you, I'm, my partner's low libido, um, and they're kind of calling me out and saying I'm oversexed and I'm a sex addict and you know I I'm somehow because I want to be sexual with you that I am uh, not a good person you know there it can go both ways and because the sexual space is so shame filled there's plenty of shame to go around and we just kind of slosh it back and forth yeah. at each other which is really unfortunate because no one you know then we come away from it feeling really inadequate, both of us, and that's not the way to solve these problems or to get closer. It ends up making us both feel like, you know, forget it. Like, I don't, I didn't want to kiss you anyway. You know, forget it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. And, and it's very hurtful. So how do you kind of set the table at the beginning? Like, if you're doing a session with a couple in person, how do you set the table mm-hmm. so you, you are, are, you know, everyone's kind of coming with their wide open minds and not these defensive mechanisms. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's the work. Okay. Um, when I work with people, we spend the, the first four sessions. So there people can hire me to do something called the quickie, which is four sessions where we really look to see what the barriers are. Um, sometimes people will take something I give them at the end, a plan, a pleasure plan with them, to do work on themselves or to work with a counselor, take this plan, work with a couple's counselor, do something else with it. Or sometimes they go forward and work with me using this plan. So when we start out, really I'm in curiosity and wondering about what's happening. And I'm asking them to um, share with me the truth about you know how they see the situation. There's always an opportunity for them to communicate with me individually because I think it's very helpful if you can do that um, 
uh, in a way so that you're not necessarily hurting your partner as you tell me things. And there are specific ways that we do that in, in my practice so that you can tell me all your stuff without dumping on your partner. They can tell me all, the, all of their stuff. And then I know what's happening, but you don't have to you know, hurt each other as you share kind of your perspective, usually coming from kind of a hurt place. So it may or may not be completely accurate. You know, we, mm. we get emotional about these things. And, and as we go forward, then I encourage my clients to speak to each other about their truths and then go, you know, connect and uh, figure things out together to create a way that they're feeling good about it and they're able to be vulnerable uh, erotically and sexually. It's more, it's so important to be vulnerable in those things. Yeah. Do you see, I'm, I'm just thinking about like generational, you know, differences. Do you see kind of differences? I'm, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, um, folks who are, you know, millennials or Gen Zers maybe are more um, familiar and le- they have less um, stigma around going to therapy. Maybe mm-hmm. they might have pursued other types of therapy, whereas and the, like, these are just huge assumptions, mm-hmm. too. So feel free to correct <laughs> me. But it's just something I'm curious about, you know, and then maybe um, older folks might not be quite as um, versed in the language of therapy. It mm-hmm. sounds like you kind of do use um, similar mm-hmm. um, approaches and, and language as a, as a couples therapist might. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just curious yeah, about that. There's, um, that's an interesting question. At one point, I had an 83-year-old man and a 26-year-old man. Um, in my practice, they were, you know, separate couples. Obviously, this was a, uh, I was uh, helping these two different people in my practice at the same time. I've worked with people who've been married 50 years in the past. Um, some of my client couples have been married, you know, um, you know, less than a year or aren't married yet or very young and, are, and aren't married yet. It would be nice to think that these days uh, people are so comfortable about sex and sexuality, but it's not really true. Sadly, even those of uh, the you know young people who are millennials, Gen Z people, um, they're not necessarily feeling that much more comfortable about themselves sexually uh, than older people. I mean, there certainly it, it, there certainly are cases in which they are more comfortable and have much more information, but sometimes they're still feeling a lot of shame around themselves, and they've had some experiences that can be really um, off-putting or even traumatic. Yeah, um, yeah, trauma certainly doesn't um, doesn't understand uh, generational boundaries. No, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't. So many of the questions, and I I guess I'm making this assumption because of course the, the names of the folks who are asking questions mm-hmm. in our in the column in the source um, are anonymized. Yeah. But I, I sort of get the feeling a lot of them are the questions are coming from women, sometimes men too, but the women who are struggling to connect, it seems like we all have a lot to learn about how men can understand women and vice mm-hmm. versa. And of course, you know, for same-sex couples, yep. just understanding one another in general. Right. What are some resources you offer to men in particular to help them understand women? That is, I, you know, I wish we had more resources um, for men to be able to understand women. One one excellent resource I suggest uh, to many, many, if not all my couples, is the book by Emily Nagoski called Come As You Are, which explains uh, the um, spontaneous and reactive desire that um, uh, couples or individuals have. And these two types of desire are really different for us. 
And it, when we understand that many women are, are responsive desire uh, people, and when men understand that we're that many women are responsive desire, that would mean that if I have a responsive desire, I'm not going to be as um, sexually aroused on a daily basis, you know, walking around on Bond Street as maybe somebody who had a reactive desire, which might be a man in that case. And this book gives readers an excellent overview of many aspects of female sexuality, and I think that it's a great place for men to start. If you're a man listening to this, I would recommend you listen to either the audiobook or read the book. She has a new edition out this year, and it's excellent, and it helps men to understand that it's kind of a scientific approach, which really helps as well. It's kind of logical. So if you are a logical type of person, um, it might help you. But you know, we could use many more resources in this regard because you know we have such an, a different type of sexuality. Even our anatomy is hidden from us. Um, if you think about male anatomy, it's pretty clear what's going on there and wh- what you might do with it. But with women, we're you know our bodies are hidden from ourselves. Our different parts of our anatomy are sensitive. Our our orgasmic response is really varied. It might be tremendously hot for me today for you to do this, and then tomorrow not so much. And so you know we can we can be um, I don't know if the word is challenging or if it's just lovely that that our partners get to explore us, but it's you know it isn't necessarily as simple as it might look for a man to be with a woman to invite her. Um, same thing with same-sex couples. If for women together to be together, it's it's of course in that case the woman the the partner has a little bit more heads up about what's going on, but it's it's challenging for men to understand us. I think sometimes. And, and that's one of the reasons why we have so many qu- uh, questions coming from men, uh, from women about men. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly we're in a time where I feel like the, you know, there's a microscope on all types of sexuality um, and how it's expressed or learned or taught in schools um, in places where young people might be gathering, um, you know, there just seems to be a lot of um, maybe fears and misconceptions mm. happening kind of nationally. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about if that's globally. Um, I'm just curious, what do you wish that we did better in terms of educating young people about their bodies and their needs? Like, what would that look like in a perfect world? Oh, my goodness. It, well, it would be very different from what happens now. The idea of being sexual beings would be normalized for us. Um, it wouldn't be shame-based. Uh, the fear of touching oneself, the fear of masturbation as a practice, self, self-pleasuring, as I prefer to call it, wouldn't be shamed. Uh, people would know a lot about their bodies, and the education that they received wouldn't be just about things to be afraid of, such as sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancies, sexual assault. These things aren't unimportant. These are important things. But we never teach young people about any kind of sexual pleasures, any things about their bodies that have to do with pleasure. One of the things that then happens is young people find out about the pleasures of, of sex and sexuality, and they realize that they didn't ever learn this this kind of thing. They were only taught the, the pieces that were frightening. And you know, it doesn't necessarily help us as, as adults or parents. Um, they, they needed to know all of it so that when they got out into the world, they were prepared to make better choices. I really think that 
when young people are taught these things, taught more about themselves, and given more of an open conversation. I don't mean that you have to sit down and specifically teach these things. I'm talking about having an open and honest kind of way of talking about sex and sexuality and the body and having lots of materials around that are appropriate age appropriate for young people so that they can absorb these things and start to feel like they have a vocabulary that they can communicate with a partner and not feel so shut down when they get older. We want them to be able to talk to, about sex with their with their partners. Yeah. Does that in your mind does do do schools have a role in that? Where where does that education happen? In our society, schools have a limited role in that. Um, we lived in Germany for a while, and you know it's a very different system there. You know, I don't know. I think that for us, we have to. The schools are put into a difficult position because they're they don't want to overstep parents. Parents have different points of view about these things. They have, you know, uh, faith-based and other types of positions and feelings and values that are that need to be respected by the schools and the school systems, but. Um, this is about being a person. This is about, you know, this is a, there are scientific things that students never learn about their bodies. There are parts of the body, the clitoris, for example, other parts of the female anatomy are never really taught to students. It's almost like there's this, it's almost like Barbie. If you think about Barbie has all these parts, you know, there's nothing there in that area of her, you know, like that's kind of the Mm-hmm. The hidden part. There's nothing in, in in there, and we we do that with students when we're teaching them. We kind of like gloss over that part. In fact, those parts of the female body are poorly studied by researchers as well. So if you know, they're still they're just now mapping the clitoris um, in in research uh, laboratories. They're finally starting to look at this part of the body, and you know, in contrast to all the rest of the body parts that have been very well understood by by anatomists for a very long time. So it, you know, we need to give students, young people, the information so that they know who they are. They, they, they are able to, you know, be together in a way that is respectful for themselves, making good decisions based on their attitudes, values, and beliefs as they go forward, and that they are safe. That made me, you know, just thinking about the, you know, the unmapped. Um, areas of the the female anatomy and also the female experience. Um, There was a a pretty large um, piece in the New York Times Magazine recently about menopause Mm -hmm. um, and about how understudied Mm -hmm. that is. Um, And I wonder what part menopause plays, you know, in your practice um, with women. I mean, um, imagine there's a number of women that are experiencing those those symptoms um, that are coming to you. Right. People in the perimenopausal period are oftentimes kind of uh, experiencing differences in their sexuality. There may be, you know, uh, vasomotor instability or hot flashes that people are experiencing, women are experiencing. You can have emotional changes. You can have some lability in your emotions. You can have a decrease in your libido during that time. That said, it doesn't mean that you're not able to be turned on um, as you go forward, even without hormone replacement therapy. Um, if we had longer, uh, more time to talk or maybe some other time over coffee, <laughs> I could tell you the story about a friend who's a medical doctor who completely rehabilitated herself um, postmenopausally just by some of the fantasies that she had and ha- ended up having a very kind of uh, juicy body that stayed, you know, uh, youthful and responsive way into her 60s as she, um, you know, kind of 
like used her mind and kind of her thoughts about sex and sexuality. She kept her fantasy a life alive, even though she was a single woman and wasn't sexually active. So there are things that we can do um, in ourselves to keep ourselves connected to our sexuality at any age. But you're right that menopause is a big challenge for many women. Some women experience a lot of sexual pain, uh, vaginal pain during uh, penetrative sex, and it can be very off-putting for them and for their partners. And so, you know, lots of people do t come to me for that, you know, that particular concern. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm certainly for anybody, you know, who has a partner, it, you're not always going to get it right. You're not always going to know their mood and um, <laughs> right. all of that stuff. And but that's such a big piece of this is connecting just as people and not just with your bodies, it appears. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And, you know, that is one of the things that's interesting in my work is um, there's a lot of the time we aren't talking about anything that has to do with naked bodies. We're talking about uh like honestly, things like the dishes and trash, and you know, and uh, imbalances in power, and um, ways that we can we can support each other in the day to day, and and how to be good partners to one another, so that we it's worth it. It's worth it to be vulnerable and connect. What are we gain? What do couples, people, you know, what do they gain when they under when they they achieve this level of understanding that comes through your work? Oh. That's such a beautiful question. They gain the ability to be more fully who they are, to feel more vitality, to be more grounded. They gain a sense of confidence that goes beyond the bedroom, that um, allows them to um, just know there's someone in the world who is delighted to see them, who lights up when they you know, run into them uh, around the corner at Costco and and you know, there's their person. They still get butterflies. They mm -hmm. feel this sense of um, of uh, curiosity about who they are. They know that they can continue to expand beyond the limitations that they've been taught about what sex means, because they're having something deeper, um, more authentic to them that includes playfulness, perhaps at, as the m most important part that is not awkward anymore. Um, where they feel like they can talk about anything, everything, and that they get it about the other person. There's this secret, beautiful connection that they're having um, that just is magic. That's amazing. Dr. Jane Gwynn, would you please tell people how to find you besides the Source Weekly? Yeah. <laughs> I'm at um, howtofixmysexlife.com. And um, yeah, I'd love to see you there. Thanks so much for being on the Ben Don't Break podcast today. It's been a delight.